This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. This afternoon, England time, all of the staff apparently who work for the royal family were called together at Buckingham Palace, and it was it was a big moment. There were a law. There was a lot of speculation. When I say it was a big moment, there was a lot of speculation. Is this something that is the queen not healthy? Is the queen dying? Is there something going on? Is there a scandal? What in the world could be happening that all the main staff had to come together? I guess this is not an altogether common request or, pers- or not really a request, a demand. It's not. It's not a common thing. And so there was all kinds of questions. Well, the answer we found out is that Prince Philip the 95-year-old husband of Queen Elizabeth, has decided he is stepping down from public life. He is retiring. Prince Philip, the Duke of Edinburgh, is stepping down. He is retiring from public life. Which led to my question. Stepping down from what? And I'm not being facetious. I'm not being miserable. I'm not being sarcastic. As I was thinking about this, I know what the queen does. At least I have a reasonably good idea. I have a good idea what the heir to the throne might do. But I honestly as I thought about it, have no idea, other than being a figurehead, what Prince Philip did as the Duke of Edinburgh. Well, joining me to help sort this out, because he is a guy who knows. Nathan Tidridge is a watered-down high school teacher. He has written several books on the crown, and he's a member of the board of the Institute for the Study of the Crown at Massey College. He joins me now. Nathan, thanks for doing this today. Hey, thanks for having me. So before I get to that question about what exactly he did, do you think that I am alone or unusual in having questions about this that uh, do you think it's unusual that I would not know what Prince Philip did or is that more common than we would maybe think no I think it's very common um, I mean when you start talking about things like the crown as an institution you kind of get into the, the the realm of the abstract right like you know what when you start talking about symbols and and and, and these these old institutions that are part of our country, um, yeah, there, there's, there are questions. Well, what do they do? What function do they do? Because they become hard to define. And that doesn't mean that they're not important, because they are, but it, you've kind of got to pause to really think about what role that they play in our society. So let's get to it then. Prince yeah. Philip was, we know he was the husband of Queen Elizabeth, so he performed the husband duties in which yeah. I, I suppose if we want to get right down to brass tacks, he provided heirs for the throne. Well, that was a good yeah. start. Um, but as a duty, it, with his duties... What were his duties? What did he do? Well, I think at the, at the core of it, his duty was to support the Queen in her work as monarch of, of not only you know, Canada and the United Kingdom, but there's also 14 other countries um, that, they, that she provides that role for. And, uh, and so in that support role, he's, got, he's meeting, uh, I can't even begin to imagine how many people he would meet on a day-to-day basis to provide a face for this institution. Um, I, I, the best way to describe it is, I mean, uh, when, you're, when you're a national symbol like that, you have to be a reflection of that country, and you have to be visual. Um, the Queen said, I have to be seen and to, to be believed, and so he supported her in that role. I mean, still today, he is performing at 95, over 700 functions. Oh, wow. So, you know, pressing okay. the flesh, meeting with people, uh, talking about different issues, and it was it was described to me once. I mean, when he meets someone, you might be the you know one hundredth person he's met that day. Uh, and so for him, it, you know, it's it's that experience. But for the person that he's meeting, that could be an event that they'll remember the rest of their lives. And so you have to be on 
all the time, 24-7. It, it's uh, the example that I would think of as soon as you say that. I remember many years ago, Wayne Gretzky uh, was talking about why he played the way he did every game, why he tried hard and why he tried to be his best every game. And he said, because there is somebody in that arena, and this will be the only game they ever see me play, and my reputation for them will be on this game. Exactly. And that, that sounds like it's a very similar thing. That he, Again, he's walking down a line, and I mean, who who cares how many people he meets to him? But to you... That's the crown. That's a significant event. I mean, I, just for a local thing, I mean, he's the colonel-in-chief of the Royal Hamilton Light Infantry uh, and has been their colonel-in-chief, um, I, I believe, since 1951 or 1957, so a significant amount of time. And he would take a role like that, and, and I know for a fact he has taken that role very seriously. So that's making contact with families at, at times of, of sadness. That's being kept abreast by the commanders of visiting him or he visiting them. Uh, to learn what the regiment is doing, being up on regimental history, and being a part of significant regimental events. And, and that takes that's, that, that takes a lot of time, a lot of stamina, and a lot of investment to do something like that. So there's not really an administrate. I mean, when we think about a job, yeah. we think it's not. There's nothing. He wasn't sitting at a desk doing anything, but he was the emotional face, or the uh, he was part of the emotional connection to the crown. Yes, uh, but I mean, there would be a lot of desk work with that because he would have to be very well briefed on, you know, all of his regiments. He's the colonel in chief of six Canadian regiments. I mean, he's visited this country uh, close to 30 times. Uh, there's the famous ones where he's with the Queen, but what a lot of people don't realize is he, he visits privately as well as part of the Duke of Edinburgh scheme, which is a, uh, you know, a, 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 a gr- um, organization that helps young people right across Canada. It's been very successful here, and he's very much invested in that. So a lot of the times he's visiting and the spotlight's not on him. So he's doing the, you know, the kind of real work of connecting people, gathering communities, that sort of thing. Okay, uh, some brass tack stuff here that, again, I mean, beyond that I really have just, as I started thinking about this today, no idea. Is the husband of a queen always the Duke of Edinburgh? No. So uh, that was a title that was given to him, and and the speculation is is that when he's no longer the Duke of Edinburgh, that his son, uh, Prince Edward, will likely take on uh, that title. So the, the Duke of Edinburgh was a title that was given to him by the queen, I believe when they were married, that he he that title was given to him. Why, since he's married to the queen, and this may be pretty basic, but since he's married to the queen, why is he not the king? Well, th- this is a debate that went back, actually, to, if I understand correctly, to another really uh, big prince consort, and that was Prince Albert, Victoria's husband. And there was worry that if they took on the title of king, that it would uh, um, misdirect attention off of the queen to them. So it, it's a bit of a dated, um, dated concept, but I, 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 that was the main reason. So he wasn't given that title because they were worried that it would deflect attention off of the queen. But would it work differently the other way then? So when Charles, if he were to become king, if he's yep. or or William, if he becomes king, if it skips Charles or doesn't, yep. will their wife become princess or queen? Technically, they'll become a queen. But again, I mean, see, we're dealing with, uh, it's kind of a dated notion. Remember, he became, you know, the Queen Prince Consort in uh, 1952. So this is a long time ago, over 65 years ago now. It It was a different time then. So who knows what will happen when Charles assumes the throne. But I mean, yes, it, it, technically by law, Camilla will be uh, known as Queen Camilla. Will she take that title? She, 
they, they're, I've heard some stories where she might go by a different title. But if you be, okay, now we're getting really into this and we're getting a yeah. little off track, but it's still interesting. If yeah. you become queen, if Camilla became queen, yes, and Charles then died, does she yes. remain on the throne or does she then have to no. abdicate and step down? No, there's no abdication. Or there's, step away. Reigning, from, so right now the reigning monarch is Elizabeth II, the queen. And when she passes, the crown goes to her hereditary heir, which would be Charles. So if, you know, if Philip was still uh, living and the queen passed away, uh, Philip's, you know, position as consort would, would, would kind of vanish and then it would go to Charles. And if Charles were to pass, then the crown goes to William. Um, so it, it, Camilla and then uh, Catherine, uh, the, the Duchess of Cambridge, they're not reigning monarchs. They're just given that title by courtesy because they're married to the reigning monarch. So all our focus, so in Canada, all our laws and everything like that, it's all with the queen. Um, it, she is the important figure, um, and he is her kind of supporter. It's, uh, yeah. Is it awkward? Is it, it is possible, obviously, but how does it work that you could be the prince and the duke at the same time? Just a different title, I think. I, or, or not, I think, I know. It's just a different title. So, okay. uh, you know, they kind of uh, accumulate titles, I guess, over, <laughs> over the years. And, and so the, the, uh, he goes by the Duke. Uh, but, I mean, I, it, he's also a prince at the same time. Okay, so now, <laughs> it's, I mean, it is, unless you're really into this stuff. I, yeah. I, I mean, it, it does become very complicated. It's nice to see the pictures. It's nice when they come to Canada and you see them yeah. parade around. But it, there's a lot of the stuff, as you say, that, that really, I mean, it's almost impossible to wade through this stuff unless you're really yeah. into it. How, okay, this, this part is a little bleak, but do you believe from a distance that the fact that he has announced his retirement today is truly just because he wants, he's 95 now and he wants to step away? Or is there something in the back of your mind that wonders if maybe there's something else health-wise going on? Because it seems that in this particular royal family, you don't step away from the throne. If she did, Queen Elizabeth yeah. probably would have stepped away by now. Is there maybe something more here? I, I don't know. I mean, I, the Queen will never step away. Uh, so whenever you hear talks of abdication and things like that, I, I don't see it ever happening. Uh, I mean, for the Duke, I mean, he is, he's 95. And so he joked today, they said, I hear you're stepping down. And um, I, I think his remark was, well, because I can barely stand up, mm. you know, and I mean, so he's, he's announcing a retirement, so to speak, uh, 30 years after most of us uh, have our retirement. But he still said that he's going to stay at the head of, I think, over 700 uh, charities as well as his regiments and, and that sort of thing. It's just the, the appearances are going to be curbed. So the actual day-to-day work and the people coming to meet with him and the correspondence, my understanding is that's going to continue. And still obviously pretty sharp. Yeah, yeah. Anyone who's met him has said that. I mean, he's, he's kind of known for his quick wit. Uh, you know, it sometimes gets him into trouble. Just before we let you go, you said that you could never see the Queen retiring. Why not? No. It's an oath. It's an oath that she took, and she. But, yeah, but the Pope did. I mean, I know it's not the same, but the Pope stepped away, and then that was a, a similar oath that they said, "No, Popes never step away," and he did. I mean, yeah. why could it not happen? If there, it, of everything that she's ever said or written, there has never been an indication that she would even counsel such a thing. Um, she's n- just never given an, an indication of that. And so, while I think you're going to see a gradual stepping away, so for example, this year for. 
you know, the anniversary of Confederation, it would be natural that she would be here for that. But uh, she stepped back from that, and the Prince of Wales is going to, uh, is going to be uh, here in Canada for that. I think you're going to see a lot more of that happening. But an act, she'll, she won't abdicate. It, it, it'll, it'll be until, until her last breath. That, that all indications are that. Nathan Tidridge, uh, really appreciate the time today. Thanks so much for, for doing this and uh, for lending some of your expertise and trying to sort me out. Because again, I, I don't, I, maybe I'm alone in this one, but really, it's, um, when I heard about this today, it, it, I don't really think about Prince Philip all that much, to be honest with you. But when I yeah. did, it was like, well, let's, you know what, let's figure out what he does, because I, I was totally confused. But thank you for taking the time and doing that today. Oh, it's my, it, can you give me 20 seconds? Go, please, yeah. So we're planning our graduation right now for high school. And when you look at graduation, it, it, it's an expense. There's a lot of time put into it. There's a lot of color. There's a lot of pageantry. And it's not necessary for the graduation process. When I always tell kids, when you get your 30 credits and you get your 40 hours, boom, you're a graduate. There's no bells. There's no whistles. And yet that ceremony is so important. To them, that confers that moment of graduation. And, you know, the pomp and circumstance. And they have to get that handshake from the principal and the vice principal. They have to see their teachers. They want to dress up. And that is that, that the power of that institution that, that can't be done by a politician. And it's a tremendous amount of work. But that, and, and it's hard to kind of quantify, but that doesn't make it not important. Right. That's that's how I would. That's that, that would be my answer to that. Appreciate the time, Nathan. Thanks so much for doing this. No problem. Take care. Uh, really interesting stuff. Again, I, I when I heard today there was going to be an announcement from Buckingham Palace, and I am not a monarchist. I'm not. Uh, uh, I'm not anti-monarchist. I don't hate the Queen. I, I just it's something that I'm. I don't spend a lot of time thinking about, to be honest. But when I heard there was going to be an announcement today, and everybody had been summoned to the palace. Boy, that sounds daunting. That sounds dire. Something terrible is happening. Well, there's there's what it was, is that her husband is, um, according to Nathan, 700 events a year, and he's 95. I would have thought if that was the number, and I believe that he's that Nathan's correct, I would have stepped away long before I was 95. Like, at least let me cut it back to one a day or three a week. But two a day at 95 years old? I'm a little surprised. I'm, I'm a lot surprised by that. I'm completely surprised by that. But who's going to take issue with a 95-year-old saying, yeah, I think probably 700 events a year is a little too much at this point. I, I think that's uh, that's probably fair. I, I think he's done his time. We, we can let him have some time off. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. So here's what's going to happen this weekend when the Blue Jays play against the Tampa Bay Rays. Here's my prediction of what's going to happen. Remember what happened last week? Before we have to, uh, to explain this, we've got to go back. What happened last week was for some reason, and no one's actually clear why at this point, Chris Archer, who's the, one of the best pitchers in baseball, can be anyway, pitches for Tampa Bay for reasons that we can't quite understand, threw behind Jose Bautista. Now, in, a, in the major leagues, if a pitcher throws behind a guy, this is not like you and I tossing the ball and missing. You don't, you, they just, they don't miss that by that much. They don't. It just doesn't happen. There's no argument that, oops, not on a fastball. That ball does not go there on a fastball by accident. There was intent of some kind. So he threw behind Jose Bautista. Nothing was done. Chris Archer is scheduled to pitch against the Blue Jays this weekend again. Here's what's going to happen. Because Major League Baseball has done nothing to address this, 
Chris Archer is going to take the mound. The Blue Jays will want to get revenge of some kind or, or at least set this thing straight. So one of their pitchers is going to drill someone on the Tampa Bay Rays. That pitcher will be kicked out of the game and get suspended, and Chris Archer will continue to pitch. I don't. It's a baffling thing. I don't quite understand it. Maybe my next guest can help me explain what in the world will be going on. Bubba O'Neill from CHCH. Uh, sir, how are you tonight? I'm well, Scott. I mean, how can you not be if you're uh, in the sports world right now? Just a, a bevy of action, every sport going right now. Let's go to that sport that I was just talking about with baseball, because I absolutely believe that unless Major League Baseball in the next 24 hours suspends Chris Archer, somebody on Tampa Bay is getting drilled, which will lead either to a suspension against a Blue Jay pitcher or an acceleration, and then a Blue Jay will get hit back, and then someone else will get hit back. If you are a pitcher, if you are standing on the pitcher's mound in the American League and you hold a baseball in your hand and you know that you never have to go up to the bat and face the music, Bob, it is my opinion that you are, if you throw at someone and you're an American League pitcher, you are the most cowardly person in sports. Why are they not, why do they not do anything to resolve this? You know, I guess this goes back to the history of the game. This has been going on for a hundred years. But in, uh, but yes, but in the old days, at least the pitchers had to go up and bat. It's only since right. 1970-something that we had the designated hitter, and they became yep. a protected species. If you wanted to drill someone in 1940, mm-hmm. you were getting drilled right back. Absolutely. But, but now with the American League, um, that particular pitcher doesn't have to pay the price. So your best player is going to pay the price for anything that's deemed suspect by the other side. And unfortunately, this is uh, baseball has sort of allowed this to happen. And when I say they've allowed it to happen, I don't mean they, they you know, they've allowed it to happen. I mean it. I mean in terms of punishment, they've allowed this to happen because in the past, a pitcher will be suspended. We'll, we'll say four, five games for throwing at someone, kerplunking someone, throwing a, per- a purpose pitch, throwing behind a player. But the problem is, what is the repercussion? of basically suspending someone for five games, a pitcher we're talking with here, when really the five-game suspension works out to one start. Yeah, because you're not, you're not pitching for the other four anyway. Exactly. You're sitting there cheering on the boys. So baseball, to me, needs to adjust or make some type of new statement or new rules or new type of punishment where instead of saying, we're going to punish you, suspend you for ten games, it's no, we're going to suspend you based on past history of a five-man rotation and suspend you for the next five starts. That's the only way that pitchers in the American League will now think about unnecessarily throwing at players. But, okay, uh, but when is, you say what, for unnecessarily throwing at players, when is the necessity to throw at players? Never. It, you're throwing a ball 99 miles an hour, and even some of the other ones. I mean, the, the, the latest one was Kevin Gosman yesterday hitting a, a player in the hip. Now, mind you, that was clocked at, I believe, you know, sub-80 80 it was a, Yeah, it was hour. a 76-mile-an-hour curveball on a cold day that I believe just was a pitch that got away. I don't believe he intended to hit him. I know, and I mean, and that's another discussion that we can get into. But regardless, I, I, I mean... 
Does it have to be 99 when it's a 77 mile an hour? I don't want a 77 mile an hour to be hit by a, a baseball going that hard. Here, yeah, because you know what happened. Let me tell a little quick story here. Um, there, you can go online. I'm going to try and find it. In fact, and I will post it on my Scott Radley Show Facebook page. A number of years ago, there was a writer for the Kansas City newspaper. It was in the, I believe it was the ninth inning, bases loaded, and they were either tied or down by a run. And there was a pitch that came inside to the Kansas City batter, and the batter jumped out of the way. And the writer said in his story the next day, he should have stood there and taken the pitch because it would have forced in the run and they could have tied the game. And then he said, I thought to myself after writing that, well, how does it feel to get hit by a 94-mile-an-hour pitch? So this writer, to his endless credit, the next day went down into the tunnel under the under the stadium, got a few of the players together, and fired up the pitching machine to 93 and stood there and had them hit him with a 93-mile-an-hour pitch in the hip. Now, good for him for doing it. He earned endless respect. But the second part of the video, the reason I bring this all up, the second part of the video, it's a second video, is two days later he showed the bruise that he had. Baba, this thing was the size of his entire hip wrapped around to the front all the way across the back. This was the biggest, ugliest, purplest bruise you've ever seen. And the point is... When you're throwing a baseball at someone at plus 90 miles an hour intentionally, there is a severe risk here that one of these times it's going to get away from the pitcher and he's going to hit a guy in the head and kill somebody. And baseball does nothing to stop it. I totally agree. And this is why I'm saying that, I mean, it's like fighting in hockey, not to, to, to compare everything to hockey. I, I just don't think you'll ever get fighting out of hockey. I don't think you'll get throwing at players out of uh, out of baseball. But what you got to do is now make someone think about it. And that's the only way you can do that is either hit them in the pocketbook or get them off the off the field. And that's by suspending them hard and and changing the culture that way. Because the players, in my opinion, get away with it. And you're totally correct. There is going to be an occasion. I'm looking at Machado when he got thrown at by Barnes. Man, that that was high heat by the head. And it was lucky enough that it bounced off his bat while he was, you know, standing in the batter's box. So imagine getting kerplunked in that. And, I mean, we've talked about concussions on your program before. Who knows what part of your head could get hit? That could actually cause serious damage. Sometimes, sometimes even the lightest hits. Sometimes we see guys that, on comebackers that get kerplunked, pitchers I'm talking about here, and it's amazing that they get up and, and continue or have a, just a concussion. I shouldn't say just a concussion, but you never know with the head. Well, to about two years ago, I think it was, near the end of the season, one of the best players in baseball, Giancarlo Stanton from the Miami Marlins, took one right in the face, and he now wears a face guard uh, that partially protects him, but still, it was it could have been. I, I'm convinced that you know, as you say, if it hits you in a slightly different spot, if your helmet is tipped up a bit, if something happens, it is potentially fatal. And here's what I don't get: Major League Baseball either does nothing, or as you explained uh, properly, gives five games or eight games or something, which which amounts to a game or two. What would be the expectation of a sentence if a pitcher throws a ball? at a batter at 90 miles an hour and the batter responds by turning around and whipping his bat at the pitcher. What do you think the batter is going to get as far as a suspension? I guarantee you it's going to be a whole lot more. Well, Manny Machado in his, uh, I don't know if he, any of you, if you heard it or, uh, I heard the F bomb tirade. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it was easily the most, um, 
uh, the, the, the most F words I've ever heard in a rant in sports history. <laughs> Put it that way. New record. But, but I mean, it was, it's something that he brought up that if he went up and took his baseball bat and just took a swing at the pitcher, I mean, and obviously the visually that would just look absolutely insane. But he said he'd get 100 games or he'd get a year. And he's right. He'd get more than that. He'd be banned. If you went up and clobbered the pitcher with your bat, you would be banned for life. You know, and really, as you said, or or even if he went and slapped it, you know, you know, on his leg, he could do equal damage to that to to that 90 mile an hour fastball that you talked about uh, in the leg. And yet the suspension would be totally different. You know, I'm not, some people may think with our discussion right now, I am not all for the, what's the word they keep using? The wussification of sports. I'm not to, I'm not looking to continue to soften and soften and soften. My, my comment is just that I don't understand. We talked last night about hockey. I don't understand why leagues have such a hard time dealing with things that are egregious, dangerous maneuvers that happen within their game. If you pitch up and in, er, look, every umpire in the major leagues, I would think, maybe not the guy last night who threw out the pitcher for throwing a 76-mile-an-hour curveball, but nonetheless, almost every uh, umpire can tell whether you were trying to hit the guy or not. You can tell if a guy threw it inside and, and it got away or if you were throwing with intent. Almost every time you can tell. Look, Scott, these are the best players in the world. Of course right? they are. I mean, the, the margin of error for these guys is is so minimal. I mean, we see hockey players, I mean, we've seen it with, if, at, at the AHL level, junior hockey with the Bulldogs. These guys can do magic with pucks, right? And at the professional level, it's even better. These are the best in the game. And the pitcher exactly knows how to go. I mean, yes, there are times where they're, they're throwing heat and it gets a little high or it gets a little low. But absolutely, I think you can tell when a pitcher is, is, is beating someone. All you need to know to know that is watch that, pit, you know, the box that's on the screen all the time now when they're talking about it. And you listen to the announcers and they say, oh, he's staying on the outside. And you look at where the ball is and they're on the very outside edge of the plate or the inside edge or up or down. They are, you're at a point when you're talking about major league pitchers where you are within a few inches hitting the target you want to hit. So it's one, it's one thing to miss by a couple inches. It's one thing to miss by on a really bad pitch, maybe miss by a foot. But if you miss on a fastball by three feet, you didn't miss. Or, or throw behind a batter. I mean, That's what I mean. All you, all you need to do is look at Chris Sale. I mean, we'll talk about Machado and Chris Sale here. I mean, when the camera shot back at his expression, I mean, it was so obvious. He knew exactly what he was doing. He, it, it, it was, he was sending a message, setting the tone, whatever you want to say. Um, and I don't know if John Farrell had him do it. We'll never know that. But in his mind, he did it, and he had a purpose, and he had a reason for doing what he did. There is another story in baseball that I want to talk about briefly. Um, and it also shockingly involves the Baltimore Orioles and the Boston Red Sox. I, I thought that it was the Jays and the Orioles that hated each other. Apparently, the Orioles hate everybody, and everybody hates the Orioles. Um, I think it's, uh, what's his name, Mr. Manager there. Um, uh, um, Showalter. Buck Showalter, yeah. Buck Showalter seems to be the manager that everyone loves to hate. But anyway, there were, we know, we heard from a number of people uh, so there is every bit of reason to believe that it happened. There were racial taunts that were lobbed at Adam Jones, Baltimore center fielder, during the game at Fenway Park. 
nobody that I've heard has disputed that that has happened. No one's saying Adam Jones somehow made this up or is trying to garner some kind of sympathy no, or create a something. Guy, a guy has actually been banned. That's right. So there's banned and banned. And I, I actually just heard today the guy who turned him in, who turned the man in, um, explained the whole story. He was with his son, which is really unfortunate. Right. But the point is, we have heard stories of racial things or otherwise that have been contested in the past. My point is, there's nobody arguing that this did not happen. This happened at a major league ballpark. And this guy got kicked out. Is that sufficient? Is that sufficient a punishment? Is that sufficient the way the Red Sox have handled this by kicking a guy out for life? Is that the way you do it? Or should they be doing something more? Should it be less? What should happen? Well, I mean, I don't know what else you could legally do if you're the team there, Scott. I mean, yes, definitely. Be, I mean, the team for the team, the, the the Fenway Park is their personal property, and they can say, we don't want you here. So I think that's uh, to the extent of what they could do. I mean, turning over to the police for some type of verbal abuse, I mean, I guess that would be the only thing next. Uh, it did sound like Major League Baseball when Rob Manford made a statement about uh, what had happened said that uh, you know players uh, fans will be ejected from the stadium and further action will be taken so i don't know what that means but um he came down pretty hard and in in a situation that uh, i think really shames major league baseball and um i thought quite honestly shame the city of boston but and should rob manfred could, sorry to the commissioner of major league baseball yeah. should the commissioner if you if this happens in soccer, let's say over in Europe, we have seen cases where the team has been penalized for the behavior of its yep. fans. Should that be happening I, under repeat such situations? I think that's uh, that's uh, that's something that could be considered, Scott. Um, unfortunately, the teams are responsible for their fans. I think we see that in the National Football League where if fans are throwing snowballs on the field, um, a team, that, that home team can be charged with a, you know, a, a foul or the a flag will be thrown um, you know, for delay of game and stuff like that. I think that's really something under extreme circumstances, Scott, but uh, I think in any way to, to get the fan to realize that their actions could hurt the team that they're there cheering for could be a way to curb the situation. Does it surprise you, and you particularly, does it surprise you that a team that for the past, how long did David Ortiz play for the Red Sox? 15 years? Yeah, easily. And was, I, I don't think even disputably, their most popular player. I think it's, it's, it, he was absolutely clearly the most popular player. Does it surprise you that a team that had an African-American guy as the most popular player, that the minute he leaves, that apparently a bunch of the fans turn into morons? Well, Scott, if you ask CeCe Sabathia and Adam Jones, many other black players in the league, this has been going on even when David Ortiz was there. This is the, you know, a number of idiot fans. Um, I think that's the only way you can really look at it. I mean, you, of course, David Ortiz, that's a great example. He has been the face of the franchise for many years. Big Poppy, the man who, you know, uh, you know, kind of made Boston strong, you know, popular when they had the incident with the uh, Boston Marathon when uh, people were, you know, died. Uh, I, I, this is, I mean, hey, I, I'll, extend, I'll extend the thought, Scott. Boston's best players are black. Mookie Betts, Xander Bogarts, uh, David Price is hurt right now. So to me, this is, this is baffling. This is, this is just um, uh, idiot fans. My only concern, and, and I say this loosely, is that the, there have been many documented cases in Boston, in the city of Boston. Last city to have a black player um, 
on on its baseball team. Um, I'll go back even further, uh, not further, but I mean into another sport. Um, Malcolm Subban, the goaltender for the Boston Bruins, uh, had a bad night and bananas being thrown at him. Um, this is something that has happened in Boston over the years, and I don't know if it's a huge problem because I don't live there, but there have been many documented cases. And since the Adam Jones incident, many black players have spoke about playing in Boston and have had similar situations. You know, and I don't, I'm not, I'm not, what am I trying to say? It, it surprises me in the sense, not that there might be somebody who would be racist or who would say something racist. That, that, I'm not naive enough to believe that it doesn't exist. I am surprised that in 2017 that somebody would feel comfortable enough in a public space to express that. I mean, I can see people doing it in social media where there's anonymity. I could see people yelling from their car when they're driving by. I'm not defending it, but I'm saying, I, you know, it's there. It exists. We know it exists. But to think that somewhere people feel, in a sports venue, people feel comfortable enough with people around them yep. to do it, that's what. That's the real part that blows me away. Is how, how I could never imagine. Even if I had that thought, I would go. Wait, wait. If I do this here, though, what do I look like? Well, and that I mean, doesn't even appear, occur to them apparently. And, and and that's a great thought, Scott. Because you're right. I mean, in this day and age, I mean, uh, you know, there is a lot of hidden racism, and but to see it so brazen, like, um, but which leads me to believe maybe alcohol was involved. You, th- um, <laughs> you and, think? And <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that's probably a fair guess. <laughs> you know, it makes me believe, too, that, you know, in this situation where we have discussed just a few moments ago that in Boston it's, it, it's, it's not a new thing. So there could be a sort of mob mentality of, of you know, two, four, five, ten fans, and they're, they think they're just having fun and it's a big joke. Yeah, but we, i, I got to cut you up. we got to go. But, no, it's... um. It is, it is a problem. We can continue to talk about this another time, but it really is something that, uh, man, you, you look at this and you go, how, wh- where do these people live that they think this is okay? Anyway, I sorry, i got to run. i got to cut. we got to go to commercial, Bubba. Always appreciate the time. Thanks. Hey, thanks for having me, Bubba. Uh, Bubba O'Neill from CHCH. Catch him at 11 o'clock tonight doing the weather and sports. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. So next week, I believe it's next week, a new musical is opening in Cambridge, just up the road, just up the highway. Uh, It is Marathon of Hope, the musical. It is the story of Terry Fox put to music. Now, if you're thinking when you hear that, that sounds like it's going to be a challenge because on its face, musicals have a connotation. At least most of them do. They're not all whimsical and they're not all upbeat and dancey. You know, Les Mis has its dark parts. It has a lot of dark parts. Uh, uh, Miss Saigon has a lot of dark parts. There's, but it sounds like a tough topic to be making a musical out of. Well, joining me to try and explain this, to talk about this musical, to to discuss how you go about making a musical of such a topic like this. John Connolly is the musical director. He is also a lyricist, a composer. Um, he's, a mu- he's a musician himself. Uh, John, we really appreciate the time tonight. Thanks for doing this. Thanks for having me, Scott. Let me be very honest right up front. When I first heard of the concept of Marathon of Hope the Musical, my first reaction, I'm going to be clear with you, was kind of to grimace because it seems like it has the potential to be something that is irreverent and... and 
this is such a, a seminal key moment in Canadian history, and so many people feel so strongly about it. How do you, well, first of all, I'm assuming you're going to tell me it's not that, but assuming that answer is the, what you're going to say, how do you keep it from being that? Because that would be a dangerous problem with this, I would think. Well, I'll tell you right off the bat, it's, it's not that. Um, and, uh, you know, you, the Fox family felt the same way as you did. It took nine years uh, to convince them to come on board. And uh, I've been working on this for 14 years, and uh, it's been an incredible journey. But each step of the way, it's been done with uh, respect for who Terry was and how he lived and uh, out of respect for what the Fox family wants. And so the whole thing is very rootsy. It's, 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 I, I'd call it a folk musical, really, because it's a lot of acoustic guitar and big, warm, warm harmonies. It's really a, a Canadian folk sound, sort of, that, we, that we've developed. Uh, I'd, you know, I, I, Neil Young, Gordon Lightfoot, Joni Mitchell, those sorts of sounds. So, Cana- yeah, Canadian sounds I- infused into it. Certainly. And the whole thing is, is rootsy. You know, Terry, uh, he was a regular guy, very down-to-earth, and the Fox family is very down-to-earth. And even the Terry Fox Foundation, it's a grassroots organization. And uh, so we've really tried to take our cues from that. And, I mean, the fact is we're dealing with one of the greatest stories ever to come out of our country. It's, it's full of passion, and it's an epic story. And Terry often talked about hope and miracles, and these are themes that just lend themselves to music. And I mean, if you, you mentioned Les Mis or Miss Saigon, and there's a lot of musicals. If you described their plot to me, I'd say, no, pass. But, uh, you know, this was, uh, you know, when I started working on this, I just, I felt that there was a possibility that this could sing if, if it was done respectfully in the right fashion, grassroots. And that's that's really what we've tried to do in uh, the last couple of years, working with Drayton Entertainment and Alex and Stockus, it's it's been a series of workshops, and everyone's on the same page. So we're not; it's not really a spectacle as, uh, as sorts. Even That's... though there's 16 people in the cast and a band of five, it's it's you know it's it's not a huge musical, but. Uh, we're dealing with a with a beautiful triumphant story. That's you know it's interesting you say that because uh, I haven't seen it. So, but in the wrong hands, I think you would probably agree. In the wrong hands, <laughs> this thing could be a mess. Oh, this this concept absolutely. done wrong could be an absolute debacle. Yes, yes, absolutely. And you know that's that's the last thing we want. If if anything, uh, you know, we're the Fox family is looking for new ways to tell the story. Because in 15 or 20 years, they're not going to be able to go into schools and talk to children and get the message out to the next generation. So uh, they're keeping a close eye on what we're doing. And it's part, you know, so really the storytelling uh, is, is first and foremost. And, uh, and we're raising money for the foundation. Last, we, we played last fall in St. Jacobs. And we were, over the course of a month, we raised about $60,000 for the foundation. So there's, you know, it's sort of, we're just glad to be a link in the chain of Terry's dream. Uh, you know, it's just an honor to be associated in the telling of that story in a new way. You said that in, in, in a little while you won't be able to go into schools. I just looked up as you were talking. Uh, it's shocking to me that this year Terry Fox would be 59 years old. Yeah, yeah. That, that, that doesn't seem possible that he could be that age at this point. You can't imagine him at that age. I know, I know. It's, it's incredible. I mean, his best friend Doug, who was with him on the road, you know he's he's retired now, huh. um, and uh, his his younger brother Daryl is at the, uh, at the foundation. Uh, you know he's going to retire soon, so time is moving on. His parents have both passed on, so 
Uh, it's 37 years since the since the Marathon of Hope. So, uh, you know, when they started, there was only one. They were the first charity run of their kind. Uh, and now there's over 400 in Canada. So uh, it's not just the run. They're also looking um, for, for new ways to share the story. So how do you get started? You said 14 years ago you started. How do you, <laughs> what, what prompts you to, st- again, because this doesn't off the top of my head strike me as the <laughs> thing that I'm going to sit down as a musician and go, what am I writing about today? I, Terry Fox, I think a musical would fit nicely. How do, what it spurs you, what inspires you to sit down and start writing about Terry Fox? It was a confluence of factors, I would say. I grew up in Charlottetown, PEI, where they have the Charlottetown Festival. And as a boy, I saw new Canadian musicals there every summer. So I sort of thought this was happening everywhere. And then I went to Sheridan College and studied musical theater there. And when I was there, um, I had already been writing songs for years. I grew, grew up writing. And uh, I wanted to, you know, I was, I was already writing for the stage. And I, I really wanted to find a Canadian story to tell. But uh, I'm a I'm a folky from you know from way back, and that's that's uh, what I in the style I wanted to sort of tell a story. And it was September, and the Terry Fox run was on, and I'd always been a big Terry Foxer, and always had participated in the run, and identified with him. And uh, it just clicked. I was looking for this Canadian story, and it was September, and so I just one day I just went into my bedroom uh, and started writing songs. I had no idea what I was doing or what I was in for. It's been quite an odyssey, a marathon in itself. So you, you didn't sit down to write this as a chronological rock opera, folk opera in, in a sense. It was just writing songs. Well, no, no, I was. I was, uh, you know, that's how I started, though, just to, just to write songs, even just to see if, if, if I could write songs from Terry's perspective, uh, the, the sorts of things he might have been feeling. And, uh, so, and I found that I could. Uh, and, and I just kept going back to, um, you know, interviews with him and, and books on him. And, uh, and, I, and I found that, no, this is actually an incredible story. Uh, and, and so along the way, a, a lot of different people have worked on the show. And I've had the opportunity to work with fantastic people. And it's been a learning experience for me. And uh, that's why, to be at this point... You know, I just, <laughs> last fall, I would just stand by the door and watch people coming in and just kind of marvel at, uh, at the whole journey because for me, it's, uh, it's such a thrill when the lights go down and, and the music comes up and I know that there's people who are going to learn new things about Terry's story uh, in the telling. There's so much we don't know about him. We all have a, a, a preconception of him and what he did, but truth is a lot of people don't know very much beyond you know, the broad sketch and there's, there's just, you know, we cover a lot of details that, um, you know, movies or books, they just haven't gotten into. But again, as you're writing all this, how many times do you stop and catch yourself and say, okay, is this appropriate for Terry Fox? Is this a reasonable, um, reflection of Terry Fox. I have to think that a few times you're doing that so you don't end up with something like sounding like Mamma Mia or something that, you know, I mean, this <laughs> just no, is completely always, goofy. Always. Yes, at, at every step. And, and the biggest help in that has been the Fox family themselves because, um, you know, every few weeks uh, we send the latest draft out to them and uh, demos of songs. And, uh, you know, they're very, they're very involved in this process. And uh, that's been a great help. They're sort of the compass for us. Um, and, and getting to know them and the people who are with Terry on the road, um, they've, it's been a tremendous source 
of inspiration and input. And uh, it's quite collaborative at the end of the day. Uh, now, if you've sent all this to them over the time, have they seen the actual play then in person? Yes, they've seen it a number of times. So is that daunting the first time when you go to perform this and the family is now sitting there? Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, after, you know, uh, after years of, of getting to know them and them getting to know me and uh, them figuring out what my goals are and, uh, uh, you know, in, in 2013, they flew out to see a workshop production of it. And uh, it was, it was Daryl, his younger brother, and Judy, uh, his younger sister, and also Bill Vigors, who was on the road with him. They're the and, the uh, media guy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, uh, you know, um, I, was, I was sitting nearby them, and it was one of the most harrowing nights of my life. But the lights <laughs> came up for <laughs> The lights came up at intermission, and uh, Bill was right next to me, and he just gave me a big hug, and Daryl followed after. And uh, it's... it's um, if they were scowling, you're running for the exits at that point. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> 14 years of my life just ruined. Where's the bottle? Yeah, exactly. I'll be at the bar, but no, it it hasn't been that at all. And and at at this point, you know, they're our biggest supporter. Uh, they're just behind us a hundred percent. And uh, you know, the whole Terry Fox Foundation, um, we're, we're we work very closely with them. So uh, that's that's been a big help. But uh, you know, it, as I say, it has been a, a journey in itself. And uh, you know, that's why it's just great to be at this point. You are not the director of this play. You're the musical director, but there are there is a director. So probably casting was not your uh, your area necessarily. But still, how when you're trying to be authentic with this? I mean, how authentic do you go? Was the first casting call for an actor with one leg, or do you? Yes, I mean, it was. was it really? Uh, yeah. So uh, yeah, that's correct. I'm the musical director. David Connolly is the director, and Alex Mustakis was the original director. And the first thing we did was send out a casting call um, to. Uh, amputee to war amps to child amputee organizations across the country, hospitals, prosthetic centers. Uh, and uh, the fact is, it's it's such a specific skill set that you need uh, to carry a musical on your shoulders. Uh, so, uh, you know, in the end, there are, there are uh, we couldn't find anyone in Canada. We looked coast to coast for months. And then again, this time, you know, we opened it up just to see if there was anybody out there. But at this point... Um, I think that for us, uh, the, the skill set, it, it wasn't there, but what we would love in the future is, is to see, uh, you know, uh, you know, a Terry who is an amputee. Uh, but w- the, the beautiful thing that happened is, is we then shifted our focus and we said, okay, we have to be creative about this. And we, so then we threw the net across the country to actors and singers and Nathan Carroll walked in. And he just absolutely blew us away. His voice is just full of so much pathos. And he he just sings like a bird, but he's so down to earth. He acts like crazy, such intensity. He's such a nice person beyond all that. And he looks exactly like Terrence Hall. But again, I wonder if part of not being able to find exactly what you're looking for is the same reason. I mean, I met, uh, I spent a week years ago, 10, 12 years ago with Steve Fonio. You remember Steve Fonio? He was the guy who did it after Terry Fox. I wrote about him. It's a daunting, as daunting as it is for you to sit and perform in front of the Fox family, it's a daunting thing to, to follow in the footsteps of that guy. And, you know, Steve Fonio lived it and it was hell for him. And I know this is not the same thing, but still for an actor, I wonder how much of it is, uh, do, do I want to 
be that guy because everybody knows that guy. And I, you know, that's, that's, there's not a lot of room in there for me to impact or influence my particular um, interpretation of him. We know who he is. You got to be him. And that, and that may be a tough spot for an actor. Oh, certainly. But I mean, that's a challenge for all of us. But the fact is, uh, everyone has their impression of who Terry is. Uh, and the, the gift that we have with the Fox family involved is is to show a new side of him. And uh, so, you know, it's, it's an opportunity for, you know, a, a, a different perspective on Terry and, and who he was. And, uh, you know, within this framework, it's, uh, you know, like we we take it very seriously. People people there's there's a lot of strong feelings about Terry in this country and around the world. Um, but it's all the more reason to share his story. Uh, you know, as as years go by, you know, kids who were born ten years ago, what does Terry Fox mean to them? So it means a run at school every September. Yes. Yeah. 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 And this year we're doing a lot of student matinees uh, for for. Uh, in this in this next month and a half, so um, that's a big part of our mission uh, is is to is to reach out. So you know it's it's a big challenge, but uh, it's it's one we we accept and that uh, you know we've worked hard to rise to that challenge. John, we got thirty seconds. Give uh, people the details if they are interested in going and seeing this. Where is the theater? Where is the website? Where can they get the tickets? That kind of stuff. DraytonEntertainment.com. The the musical is called Marathon of Hope. Uh, we open on May 18th in Cambridge, and we run about three weeks, and then we move to Penetanguishene at the Kings Wharf Theatre. Uh, so we uh, we open there June 5th for a couple weeks, and um, we'd love to have you come out. Uh, it's uh, you know there's there's a great cast, beautiful design, uh, some humble songs, and um, you know it's a raising money for the Terry Fox Foundation. So. Scott, I just really appreciate you having us on and uh, your support of the show, and I, I look forward to the production. John Connolly, thanks very much for doing this tonight. Good luck. I guess Bye-bye. I shouldn't say that, I'll, but you also, sorry, I was going to, you know what, I almost caught myself saying break a leg. You, that's probably not the right thing to say for this musical. Well, we'll take whatever whatever bit of luck we can get. I'll t- good luck <laughs> then. We'll stick with that. John Connolly, thanks for doing this. Thank you, Scott. Uh, that is uh, Marathon of Hope. Now, again. I, I'm not. I'm not going to say otherwise. When I have heard about this, I was very nervous. This is not the kind of subject matter that would strike me as being fodder for a musical. But I will say this: it has performed in St. Jacobs. It has performed elsewhere. Uh, it got almost all positive reviews. I haven't seen it, but most, if not well, not all. Uh, there were a few that weren't, but most of the reviews were positive, and that is, to me, um, that is a relief because the last thing you want is to take a Canadian icon, and not just a Canadian icon as far as someone that everybody knows. I mean, a beloved Canadian icon and somehow turn it into a mangled maudlin or whimsical or whatever um, joke of a show. If you want to go see it, Again, uh, he mentioned the website there. Uh, just type in Marathon of Hope the Musical. You'll find it. Drayton Entertainment is the name of the place. Uh, if that is of interest to you, uh, you can go online and get some tickets and drop me a line afterwards and tell me what you think, whether whether what John said holds up. I'd love to hear from you. The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900. AM 900 CHML.